Well, I've said this before, it is, it is with great difficulty that I give up the pulpit for a Sunday, but this Sunday it's a joy to me. We have uh, our missionary to Rugby England, Tom McConnell, and his entire family here. We see most of them here. Um, it, it, you can use any name from the Bible that starts with J, and one of their kids will answer you. So that's <laughs> easy way to remember, but... Um, Kathy and, and uh, all the kids, it's a joy to have you here with us. So I want to introduce Tom. He's been here before, but I want to introduce him a, a little bit different way. I want you to know him as I do. I, w- I want to talk to you about uh, mind, soul, and heart. Tom has the mind of a scholar. He is a two-time graduate of the Master's Seminary, and he is doggedly determined that all truth will be derived from Scripture and Scripture alone. Amen. And we love that, and we appreciate that, and that has been the hallmark of his ministry. He additionally, um, in addition to having that dogged determination, having been saved out of Roman Catholicism, is so eager to share the, the logic and the, the, the absolute necessity of the true biblical gospel. Yes. And so you will hear that this morning. Regarding Tom's soul, he has the soul of a shepherd, and he absolutely uh, has shepherded my heart. We've been friends for a decade now. He shepherds everyone around him. He shepherds his wife, his children, and he, he was born for the ministry, and you will sense that this morning. And then, the, in addition to having the mind of a scholar and the soul of a shepherd, he has the heart of an evangelist. I was talking to him on the phone the other day. And he interrupted our phone call to finish an evangelistic conversation with somebody in the hallway. And I loved that priority, Tom. I love the fact that I was there counting the minutes go off on my cell plan because <laughs> the kingdom was more important. And you will hear that as well this morning. And so would you please give a warm Grace Bible Church welcome to Pastor Tom McConnell. Thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, for that uh, very generous and gracious introduction. When you said uh, we've known each other for more than a decade, I had to catch my breath. Has it been really that long? And um, boy, how the time flies. And um, your, your pastor is a great uh, blessing to me, uh, a tremendous friend. Even before he, uh, he, you called him to be your pastor, he and I would regularly talk about the ministry. His uh, book that he's written on Shattered Shepherds, has, uh, along with Richard Sibb's book, A Bruised Reed, uh, his book on Shattered Shepherds has been a healing balm to my own heart, and I have bought multiple copies to share them with other ministers who have been broken and sweetened. Uh, through the crushing blows of ministry, and it's just a tremendous uh, privilege to be able to stand here. I know you don't give up your pulpit uh, easily. Thank you for the tremendous uh, opportunity to be here. I'm so excited to hear that tonight there's going to be a baptism service. Now, I've never seen a baptism service in this church before, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how you do it. Are, will they be sharing testimonies uh, in the pools, uh, in the waters of baptism? So I'm very much looking forward to see a church that's regularly sharing the gospel and in whose body the Holy Spirit is having dealings with uh, in regards to salvation. 
And I know that in a congregation like this, perhaps many of you are regular attenders or perhaps some of you are visiting for the first time and, and you don't really know what the gospel is and, or perhaps why it's so important. And I trust that after the preaching of God's word this morning that you'll come to realize how, how important it is and to invite you back tonight for the testimonies of those who will be declaring Christ as their Lord and Savior uh, tonight. I want to say to those particularly who are getting baptized tonight and to everyone here that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, you'll never be the same again. Your life has changed forever. And, um, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning from Colossians chapter 4, uh, reading verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4. Verses 2 to 6, I'm reading from the, uh, the New American Standard translation. And Paul writes these words towards the, the end of his letter. In chapter 4, verse 2, he tells the believers in Colossae, Devote yourselves to prayer, and keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Will you join me in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace already given to us this morning in multiple ways. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of salvation that so many of us have enjoyed, and some of us for many, many years. We thank you, Lord, for that saving grace, and we thank you for the sustaining grace, Lord, to not only get out of our beds, but be able to gather in a place like this whose intent is to exalt your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, now, that as your word is opened and has been read, that your spirit would have dealings with each one of us. Lord, some for encouragement. Uh, Lord, some for correction. Lord, some for conviction. And multiple other reasons that, and purposes for which your word, you're sending it out today. We pray that you would accomplish each and every goal you have. And in the end, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be honored and exalted in it all. Would you come and help your servant and help those who hear to, to listen clearly and carefully and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Colossians, Paul, the Apostle Paul gives a twofold message about Jesus. His first message that he champions is that Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for your salvation. That is a necessary part of the context of the book of Colossians. Uh, the error that was brewing uh, around Colossae at the time that Paul writes this letter, Paul is in prison 
and he is writing from, uh, from under house arrest this letter to Colossae, a church he had never been before, uh, to address some errors and concerns that had been brought to his attention by their faithful pastor, Epaphras, who traveled from Colossae about a thousand miles to see Paul in Rome for counsel. And the error that was brewing around Colossae was a mixture of Judaism and paganism. You might call this encroaching heresy in Colossae the Jesus plus heresy. This heresy taught that Jesus is good, but Jesus is not enough. He's good, but you need to add more. You need to help Jesus out. According to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, this heresy used philosophy. And this heresy used deception and the traditions of men to actually lead people away from Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. According to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, the teacher of this heresy sought to use food and drink and festivals and new moons and even Sabbath days as a means of controlling those who might accept his heresy. The rules and regulations that this heresy required, however, from the Jesus plus heresy, those rules and regulations failed miserably to deliver. In what way? If you look at Colossians chapter 2 in verse 23, Paul distills his argument against the Jesus plus heresy using one convincing argument. There it is in chapter 2 in verse uh, 23, he says that the, that they have an appearance, these matters which have to be sure an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, that's all the Jesus plus heresy was teaching, they have an appearance of wisdom, but listen how he summarizes it in verse 23, chapter 2, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So they... Uh, the man-made religion and the Jesus plus movement or the Jesus isn't enough movement could not um, succeed. They, they fail ultimately because they, all of the external religions, all the man-made rules and regulations could not deliver them against fleshly indulgences. Paul's argument is only Jesus can deliver a person from the power of fleshly indulgences. In fact, they are leading people away from Jesus to all these man-made rules and regulations. They're leading people away. This heresy is intended to lead people away from the source of salvation, from the person of salvation, from the only one that can bring true and lasting salvation, the only one that can deliver not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And Paul gives the key to victory over sin here throughout this letter of Colossians. And the key to victory over fleshly indulgence, the key to victory over sin in our lives, the key to, uh, to uh, victory in this fight uh, for our lives against sin, and this key is union with Christ. If you're going to be able to uh, have some victory or ultimate victory over sin, death, and hell, you must come into union with Jesus Christ. You must be united to Christ. And notice in chapter 2, in, in verse 9, 
Paul says, for, notice the prepositional phrase, in him, that's in Christ. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Look at verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. In verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. A spiritual, a metaphor describing the new birth. Look down in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to, toward us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The victory over sin, death, hell, all the spiritual wickedness uh, in high places is through Christ being united with Christ. And that's what Paul was telling the church at Colossae. Though the Jesus isn't enough heresy was brewing on the outside, seeking to make its way in the church, he said, don't give in to it. Jesus is, he's, he, this passage, this book is considered to have the theme of the sufficiency of Christ. I was talking with my wife even last night, and I just said to her, I said, honey, it just seems as if the word sufficient isn't sufficient to describe Jesus and how much better he is than what the, uh, the heresy surrounding Colossae were trying to say. Sufficient in our day and age almost has the idea it could be interpreted as being barely enough. Jesus is, is more than that. And Jesus, is, Jesus alone can save. And um, and so in him, uh, they the the Colossians needed to know how to be able to uh, address their fleshly indulgence, which waged war within their members, in which they were struggling. And all of this man-made religion, or none of this man-made religion, could do anything against that. It was vain. It was empty. It was futile. According to Colossians chapter two, verse twenty-three, and. Paul says that the key to victory is to come into union with Christ. Everyone who's saved comes into union with Christ. The ones who will be in the baptistry tonight, if they are truly saved, have come into union with Jesus Christ. And let me say that I don't know of anyone who's come into uh, contact with Jesus in a saving way uh, who's ever been the same since. The Bible makes it clear that those God saves, He sanctifies. In other words, He doesn't save you to give you fire insurance to deliver you just out of hell. He saves you, and part of His plan in saving you, we read in Romans chapter 8, is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's not happened in you yet completely, and that's not happened in me yet completely. It will be when I die or if the Lord returns and gives me a glorified body. Uh, when that happens, um, then we will be like him, the Bible tells us. And so the big question is, how did the Colossians come into union with Jesus Christ? That's the practical question so far. How did they come into union with Christ? And my dear lost friend, 
This is the question that you need to relentlessly pursue today is how do I, how do you come into union with Jesus Christ? And the answer is the same for you as it was for the Colossians. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, in verse 4, Paul is introducing, uh, is still in the introduction to his letter. In verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And that's how you become united with Christ, by placing your faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus. They, the Colossians heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they rested. They, they trusted entirely in the person and work of Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus like you and I might believe, say, in a historical figure like Abraham Lincoln. They rested and trusted and were uh, tr- uh, trusting completely in him. The only way to overcome the power of fleshly indulgence The grip and dominance of sin is by union with Jesus Christ that comes through faith. My dear lost friend, if you want to know how to have union with Christ, you must place your faith and trust entirely in Christ. And here it is, alone. As pastor said, I was saved, uh, uh, I was saved, uh, as a, as out of the Roman uh, Catholic Church. My whole family was uh, raised Catholic. McConnell, Irish Catholic. My mother, first-generation American from Spain, Asnar Garcia, Spanish Catholic. My aunts and uncles, Coppola, Coppola, Italian Catholic. I love Roman Catholic people. I I hate the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And if uh, you are uh, trapped in that false religion today, let me tell you that you are taught to believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And if you read the Bible, just read the Bible. You will see that what the church, the the RCC teaches, contradicts in so many places what the scripture says. And if you're really going to believe the Bible is God's word, then you're going to believe these words. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, faith or salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, which is what we were taught in the Roman Catholic Church, lest anyone should boast. You've not been told the truth. Someone needs to tell you, read the Bible. It is the Jesus Christ and him alone. And that church in which I was saved out of could also be characterized as the Jesus plus heresy. Because they say Jesus is good. That's what we're taught. That's what we were taught. But Jesus isn't enough. And so there are many religions like that, not just Roman Catholicism. But there are many religions that Jesus teaches Jesus is good, but he's not enough. There are other things. This is your only hope of forgiveness, is placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which leads to repentance and the confession of your sin. And this is obviously only something the Holy Spirit can do in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. As one hears the gospel, believes the gospel, obeys the gospel. In other words, without union to Christ, your fight against sin is hopeless But if you're united to Christ by faith, Romans 8.29 assures you that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
So Paul champions the message, Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for your salvation. Second, Paul trumpets the message that union with Christ transforms us. Uh, Christ alone uh, is sufficient for salvation, but uh, that salvation that we come, when we come into union with Christ, that union with Christ transforms us. I know that Jesus did not save every person he met, as we read in the Gospels. But as I read in the Gospels, it is clear to me that those Jesus touched were never the same again. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, you don't turn there, but just take down notes. And you remember the man possessed by demons living in the graveyard of Gerasene. And he, he wanted, he'd been delivered from these demons and he wanted to go and be with Jesus and go with Jesus. And Jesus said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. I submit to you that man would never be the same again. Remember the the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, where uh, she had been, uh, she had had her heart exposed to, and her sin exposed, and she goes into the city, come see a man who told me all things whatsoever I have done. Is not this the Christ? And the whole town comes out because of the word of her testimony. They listened to Jesus and they said, it's no longer because of what you said, but we have seen and testified that he is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. And uh, I, I contend in advance to you that uh, neither that woman nor the town of Sychar would ever be the same again. You don't come to have Jesus enter your life, touch your life, and go on as if that was just a blip on the uh, on the on the sea of life. I remember after the Lord saved me, my mom said, "Oh, this is just a phase." Anyone ever have someone say that to you after you got saved? It'll be over. It's, it's like a it's like a bad cold. You know, three. I'll give them three months. I'm sure some of you who have had family members or friends. Similar situations, right? They're actually taking bets, or maybe even worse than that, trying to get you to fall and discredit Christ and turn away from Christ. Some of you may be in that very situation today. But I contend in advance to you that all of those who have come savingly uh, and experienced the salvation that Jesus Christ offers, you're, you're never going to be the same again. Jesus doesn't save someone and just leaves them like they are. He has a purpose for saving you. Ephesians 2.10 says he saved you so that you would serve him. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should do them. And so if you're saved and you're, and you're not serving Christ, then, um, then something's wrong with you. Something's not right yet. Meet with the elders, meet with the leadership and say, I'm, I'm saved, but, I, but I'm not serving Christ. I'm just looking out for my family. I'm looking out for myself, but I'm not using my gifts to minister to the body of Christ. God, Christ saved you and placed you in the church so you would use your gifts to minister to other people. I submit that no one comes into contact with Christ in a saving way and remains unchanged. You remember the leper Jesus healed in Matthew 8, 2 through 3. The leper came to him and bowed down to him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I love this. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Oh, that is such an amazing thing to touch a leper. He touched him and he said, I'm willing. Be cleansed. 
And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This former leper would never be the same again. Matthew 9.20, the woman with a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. If only I can touch his garment, I will get well. She does. She's never the same again. Matthew 12, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue when they are wondering if Jesus is going to do a miracle on the Sabbath and he looks around, the scene is intense and Jesus looking at the faces of those who are watching if he'll break the Old Testament law and he says, you, stretch your hand out. And the man stretches his hand out and that withered hand becomes whole. That man was never the same again. When the Apostle Paul recounts his conversion to King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 13, he said, at midday, O king, think about this, in the desert, you have some bla- I was trying to figure out what that yellow thing in the sky was, being from Britain. You know, it's always gray over in England, but you have this yellow thing. It's called the S-U-N. And one day, Paul's on his way down to Damascus to persecute Christians, and the S-O-N shows up. The other son, in fact, he says it was at midday, O king, that I saw a light from heaven, and I love this, brighter than the sun. There was an eclipse, Jesus showed up, and the, and the sun looked dark compared to him. He's the glorious Christ. He's not on the cross anymore. Read Revelations 1-3. to He's the glorious Christ. And I submit to you that very man, Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians in which we find ourselves, that man was never the same again. When a man or woman or young person is truly in Christ, united with Christ through faith, believing entirely and only in Him for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls, their lives, your lives will never be the same again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if a man, any man be in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are united with Christ through faith, your life in every way and in every area will be transformed. You, you cannot get a pass. You're not the exception. Genuine salvation even changes the truly saved missionary and the truly saved minister. Uh, in, in England, many of you who are familiar with uh, us serving in rugby England, you know that throughout church history, there have been countless people who have entered the ministry uh, as a pastor and have been unconverted. They would do so because at that, in, in those early years, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was viewed very highly, had the respect of the, uh, uh, of the neighborhoods and of the nation. It provided for them materially when other people were poor and not eating. And so people would go into the, say, Anglicanism, uh, in the Anglican church, who were truly unconverted men, men who had never been saved, men who were not in Christ. And William Haslam of Cornwall, Reverend William Haslam, uh, Haslam of Cornwall, was one of those men. 
1851, Reverend William Haslam was the unconverted parish minister in the Baldhood Church, which is at the very southwest uh, tip of England in an area known as Cornwall. So if you think about the island of, uh, of England or the United Kingdom, then there's this little toe that goes down to the southwest. That area is Cornwall, and that's where Haslam is from, was from in 1851. Through a series of events in the church, he pastored um, and had a gospel conversation uh, with a, a minister who lived by, and Reverend Haslam came under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Haslam wrote, Conviction was lying hold upon me, and the circle was becoming narrower after he talked with this, uh, this pastor, Pastor Aitken. Sorry about this. Pastor Aitken said, You're no converted man. You see, Haslam's gardener had been converted, and Haslam was upset because when his gardener was sick, he didn't call for Reverend Haslam. He didn't call for his pastor. He called for a minister who was truly converted. And so Reverend Haslam was a little bit upset that his own men and his own parish didn't call for him. And uh, Reverend Aiken said, I wouldn't have called for you either. You're not converted. You could do me no good as I'm approaching eternity. And, and Haslam's gardener got converted. He heard the gospel from this other pastor. And he got saved, and Haslam was bemoaning it, and Aiken was pulling up, and he said, why are, you, why are you so downcast? You couldn't have done that man any good. You need to be saved yourself. And so Aiken witnessed to him. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit began to work on Reverend Haslam. And he said, conviction was lying hold upon me and the circle was becoming narrower. My mind was in a revolution. He said, I felt, this is Haslam now, as if I were out on the dark, boundless ocean without light or oar or rudder. My distress seemed greater than I could bear. I could not rest. He said, on Sunday, on the Sunday, I was so ill, I was quite unfit to take the service. And the man who had witnessed to him, Reverend Aiken, had said to me, he said, if I were you, this is Aiken talking to Haslam, I would shut the church and say to the congregation, I will not preach again until I am converted. Pray for me. And Haslam said, shall I do this? Should I shut the church and post that note on the sign uh, on the front of the church? Well, Haslam goes to church anyway. And he does the public reading of the scripture, which is part of their liturgy. And he reads Matthew twenty two forty two, which says, What think ye of Christ? Haslam wrote, As I went on to explain the passage, I saw that the Pharisee and scribes did not know that Christ was the Son of God or that he was come to save them. They were looking for a king, the son of David, to reign over them as they were. And he went on to say, Something was telling me all the time, You are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You do not believe Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to save you any more than those Pharisees. That's what he's thinking about in the pulpit. And Haslam said, I do not remember all I said. But as I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not see about Jesus, God was drawing Haslam to himself. He said, whether it was something in my words or my manner or my look, I know not. But all of a sudden, 
A local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting his arms up, shouted in the Cornish manner, the parson is converted! The parson is converted! The parson is converted! And hundreds of people in the congregation began to chant the same thing, our parson has been converted! And he said, I joined them, saying the parson is converted! And the news spread in all directions that the parson was converted and that by his own sermon in his own pulpit. (laughs) History shows that Reverend William Haslam was saved by the amazing grace of God. And I tell you, Reverend Haslam was never the same again. He went from renovating buildings to preaching the gospel in which the Holy Spirit was regenerating hearts. And if you have been genuinely saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be the same again. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's what's happening to you right now if you're truly saved. You're being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Jesus Christ from one level of glory to the other, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So back to Colossians now. That's a big porch and a small house for the sermon. In the book of Colossians, Paul illustrates how far-reaching the saving power of the person and work of Jesus goes in transforming those he saves. Would you look at Colossians chapter 2 in verse 11 and note this, that union with Christ gives you a, a, a new heart that beats after God and His Word? I'm expecting to hear that in the testimonies and when I talk with someone who's truly been saved. Colossians 2.23, union with Christ gives you the power to stop the indulgence of our flesh. Those temptations that we all have, preacher and missionary included. James tells us we each have our own weakness, that thing that can tempt us, that we have to fight against. Union with Christ in chapter 3 and verse 1 transforms your desires. In chapter 3 and verse 2 transforms your minds. In chapter 3 and verse 3 transforms your living. In chapter 3 verse 4, union with Christ transforms your despair into hope. In chapter 3 verses 5 through 10, union with Christ transforms you so that you can be sexually and morally pure. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, union with Christ transforms your self-centeredness into a holy concern for others. Union with Christ transforms your impatience with those who sin against you into a compassionate, patient, forgiving pattern of life. In verses 12 through 14. In chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, union with Christ transforms the church corporately and individually. A union with Christ transforms the entire family in chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives' relationships with their husbands are transformed in 3.18. Husbands' relationships with their wives are transformed in 3.19. Children's relationships with their parents are transformed in 3.20. Fathers' relationships with their children are transformed in 3.21. Slaves' relationship with their masters are transformed in 3.22 through 25. And masters' relationships with their slaves are transformed in 4.1. This is is the total transformation of the first century family that included slaves. You can't 
this being unified with Christ, coming into union with Christ is not merely a theological abstract. It touches your very life. You could see it in everyday living. And so in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Paul identifies three final areas that are transformed by their union with Christ. First, their union with Christ transforms their prayers. In verses 2 to 4 of chapter 4 now, Colossians chapter 4. Union with Christ transforms your prayers. Your prayers will be transformed when you come into faith in Jesus Christ in four ways. First, your prayers will be undeniably persistent. That's what we see in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. It's a command, so it's not leaving it as a suggestion. It's something that you should do. The present tense indicates a continuous praying. MacArthur, if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, speaks of it as persistent prayer or to hold fast and not let go. And, and, and being unified with Christ transforms the way you pray. You're not just saying, you know, uh, just some sort of little, uh, little kind of prayer off to the side so you can tick a box and be done with it. No, your prayers are, are transformed. They're persistent. It's the same kind, it's the same word, devoting yourselves to prayer that's used in Acts chapter 6. Remember when the apostles, they had the, the prototypical deacons there in Acts 6, and, and they said, we will devote ourselves continually to prayer. I remember Eric Alexander preaching that at our graduation at Master Seminary when I, when I graduated uh, in 99, and, and he said it in the Scottish brogue, and I can't do it, but he, he said it, we will, he said, I hope that, uh, that these words will mark your steps as you walk out the door today. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And that's the kind of persistent praying. It's undeniably persistent. Your prayers will be marked by spiritual alertness. And he says that you'll, uh, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Keeping alert means to stay awake, to be in a constant state of readiness. It's the same word used in Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's the same word that Jesus used as a rebuke to the church in Sardis. Uh, and that his whole rebuke to Sardis senders on this word, wake up, wake up, be alert. Reve- uh, Revelation 3, 2 to 3, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour I will come against you. So the second way in which your prayers are transformed, you'll be marked by spiritual alertness. Uh, One of our missionaries said that he had uh, a terrible uh, experience, painful experience, because he had forgotten that he had an enemy. Have you forgotten that that you have an enemy? There's an alertness Gregoreo, this is, a, this, is this, this word here, to be alert. But thirdly, your prayers will be filled with thanks. Are, you, are your prayers mostly uh, asking for something? How much, how much thanks are you giving? This word thanks means the, uh, the quality of being grateful 
there's the implication of an appropriate attitude. We talk about the attitude of gratitude. I really think that that's biblical. It's rendering thanks. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. A lot of us are good at, at making requests, but it's with thanksgiving. We, we leave that off. Saying to one of my dear children who was crying, they were run down and tired and crying that they didn't get something and wasn't sure if it was because they were fatigued and we were guilty of keeping them up in the fast pace that we have to keep on the missionary road. But um, started talking to her, and I just said, you know, honey, you can go to bed thinking about what you're, what you're not getting tonight, or you can go to bed tonight thinking about all the wonderful things that God has allowed you to enjoy. And it'll make a difference how you sleep tonight. You know, she, she stopped crying, and she was listening carefully. And then she cried later again, and so <laughs> we're still working on that. <laughs> it's with thanksgiving. Not, Lord, look at what I didn't get. Lord, thank you for what I have. I'm so blessed. So blessed. Fourthly, your prayers will be intercessory. They'll be, they'll be gospel-oriented. Gospel-oriented. Where's that? Verse 3 and 4. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word. What's he praying for? Is he praying that he can have the cell door open in his Roman imprisonment? No. No. When you look at it, he doesn't care about being in prison. He wants the do- a door to open for the word. He'll say in, other, in another letter that the word of God's not imprisoned. I'm in prison because I've got to reach these people. And God knows that he has his people he wants to say. That's why I'm here. But pray that a door will open for the word. Not so I can get out, but so that the word will go forth. The gospel and, and he says, uh, this is this metaphor, God opens to us a door for the word, speaks of opportunity. It's the opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul returns, doesn't he? He says uh, that the door, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And if you read Colossians 1, 24 through 27, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we will do that now. He, he returns to that subject of the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. And notice what he says in verse chapter 4, verse 3. His desire is not to have opportunity to preach the gospel, but his desire is to have opportunity to speak the gospel. How many of you are praying for gospel opportunities to speak the word? How many of you are seeing gospel opportunities God is readily providing you each and every day? Maybe what we, maybe what we need to do is, is stop praying, oh God, give me opportunity to share the gospel and say, oh God, open my eyes so that I can see the opportunities all around me to share the gospel. I, I contend in advance to you that so many people are focused on this particular thing and that particular thing in the Christian life in, uh, with the statement of saying, I want to be like Jesus, but you see no change in their evangelical evangelistic zeal for the lost. I mean, you're going to be like Jesus? What was he like? He left heaven, come to earth to seek and to save that which is lost? You're going to be like Jesus, but you're not sharing the God. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Very simple. Very painful if you haven't done it recently. I guess the question is this. 
Are you able yet to see people around you with the eyes of the Savior? To see the lost humanity under the wrath of God the way He sees them? That's a genuine mark of becoming more like Jesus. Be compassionate. Be like Jesus and see the the plight of the lost. And ask God for courage to say something. The fear of man brings a snare. And he that winneth souls is wise. How many of you are taking those gospel opportunities? Pray that I might make it clear. What clear? The mystery of Christ. And clarity is, that's how, that's, which is how I ought to speak. What he's saying is, is speaking the gospel with clarity involves prayer. Speaking the gospel with clarity involves oughtness, which is how I ought to speak. Oughtness involves that which is fitting. Is, is it fitting how I'm saying this? Oughtness involves urgency, that which is necessary. Do you have a clear understanding of the gospel? If you don't have a clear understanding of the gospel, how are you going to share that gospel with someone else? Is your testimony of salvation crystal clear? Can you explain the gospel to someone in a simple and clear way? So, your union with Christ transforms your prayer. Secondly, it transforms your conduct. Notice what he says in verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. He uses the word here of walk. It's your walk here. Conduct yourselves or walk um, uh, in a manner of wisdom. Walking here is how you live your life. Paul returns to how believers are to live using the walking metaphor. In one ten. so walk as a, in a manner worthy of the Lord. In 2.6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Colossians 3.7, in these two you once walked. Walking is a metaphor for Paul that just says, this is how you used to live. The walking and living is linked with your conduct. Notice this now, don't miss this, toward unbelievers. Did you notice the evangelistic aspect of the praying? There's an evangelistic aspect to the living. It's you have to be concerned about the way you live and conduct yourself towards outsiders pertaining to non-inclusion in a group. It refers to unbelievers, those outside the church. And there are many of you are involved in, in secular business. You, you, you have a mission field all in front of you. And you have to be careful how you live. But you cannot be silent. Making the best use of the time. This word time speaks about the brevity of life. The psalmist said, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 89, 46 and 7. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. In James 4, 14. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Make the best use of your time. Literally, buy time. Buy it up. Redeem the time. Gain something. Make an advantage out of the opportunity. I think it speaks about taking 
time to share the gospel with unbelievers because of the reference to outsiders. Not just be careful how you live with them in the sense of don't let them accuse you of of things, but make the most of the time. Buy the time up. Their time is fleeting. They're headed to a crisis eternity. Take a few moments to do for them what someone had done for you and tell them about Christ. Thirdly, your union with Christ transforms your speech. It transforms your prayer. It transforms your conduct. And in verse 6, we find that it transforms your speech. Now, in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, and chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, speech, uh, the transformation of our speech is expected if we have union with Christ already. Speech in general, we, we know uh, in Ephesians 4.29 about corrupting talk, that we're not supposed to have any corrupting word come out of our mouth. That which is foul or rotten, such as referred to spoiled fruit and putrid meat, foul language of any sort uh, in the MacArthur Study Bible should never pass a Christian's lips because it's totally out of character with his new life in Christ. If you've been saved, your speech has changed. You talk different. Uh, when, when I got saved <clears throat> as a teenager, the Lord had to do a custorectomy on me because Every other word out of my mouth was filthy and foul and, 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 um, and full of blasphemy. I can remember sharing the gospel with a young man in, in, um, in study hall. You know, study hall is where you do no studying and you just chat for an hour. And I was sharing the gospel with him and I was saying, you need to be saved and effing Christ is, he's an effing great savior because every word out of my mouth before I was a Christian was F this and F this and F this. And he said, how can you tell me I need to be saved when you're saying effing Jesus and F, F, F? I said, I'm effing not. And then I heard it for the first time. I, I was swearing with my savior's name. And I wept, oh God, will I ever get over that? Will I ever be able to stop that? In my house, growing up, I only heard the name of Jesus with profanity surrounded all around it. And God has been transforming me and changing me. His name is wonderful. His name is lovely. It's that fair name. And he says, we know about this, this speech in general, but I believe in the context here, he's talking about the gospel speech. Let your speech... In other words, he's talking about praying with evangelistic overtones. He's talking about living with unbelievers in mind. And you'll have to believe that he... He completely divorces himself with anything having to do with unbelievers if you think he's just talking about speech in general. No, he continues the thought about how the Christian life is supposed to affect the unbeliever. That's why I think when he says, let your speech always be with grace, that's what you needed in order to be saved. That's what they need in order to be saved. As though seasoned with salt. (laughs) Salt makes things taste better. It preserves Some of us can't have it on our food anymore. But it's good, isn't it? And it makes you what? Want more. 
Is that the kind of evangelistic talk you have, the kind of speech you have? When you get done, they're, they're saying, well, what about this? And what, they want a little bit more. Or are they saying, so glad I'm away from that psychopath who's trying to tell me that I'm going to hell. Seasoned with salt, seasoned with grace. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. I believe this is evangelistic speech so that you may know how to answer. Do you see what's happened here in a very brief way? In a very brief way. Paul said, will you pray for me that I'll know how to speak the gospel clearly? And at the end of his closing remarks, he said, I'm going to pray for you so that your evangelistic speech will be salty. What he was saying was, I'm not the only one doing evangelism. I'm not the only one expected to speak the gospel. You're in the church at Colossae. I'm in the prison at Rome. We have the same job to do. Make disciples of the nations so that you may know how to answer. Verse 4, 4, 4, Paul prays, asks intercession for how I ought to speak. In 4, 6, Paul says, so that you will speak to each person. So that you will know how to speak to respond to each person. You have a role to play in bringing the gospel. You need to know it. You need to believe it. You need to be changed by it. If you've truly been saved, you're going to be like Jesus, whether with your consent or without it. And so my plea for you is, is to be transformed in this area of sharing the good news with the lost. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You cannot come into contact with Jesus Christ and be in a saving way and be unchanged. Union with Christ will, by faith in Him alone, will transform your prayers. And make them evangelistic and persevering. It will transform your conduct towards outsiders, unbelievers. And it will transform your speech. I said to you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, you'll never be the same again. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we praise you for our time in your word. Lord, there are many people in the United Kingdom, many people in the United States who claim to be Christians and their lives seemingly have been unchanged inside and out for many years. And I can't help but think of how many people are deceiving themselves into thinking, Lord, that they are truly yours when they are just become religious, but not regenerate. I pray, Lord, that as your word has gone forth today, that you would cause everyone here under the sound of the word 
to examine carefully to see that they're in the faith and to realize, Lord, that those you save, you transform into your glorious likeness. Lord, forgive us for our sins, which are many. Thank you for your patience with us as you deal with us to sanctify us and make us more like yourself. May you arm this church under its good teaching and its godly leadership to not only know the word, but to continue to be doers of it. Thank you, Lord, of those who have been saved and those who tonight make the good confession publicly. We pray, Lord, even now for them that fruit will abound for your glory's sake and do a work throughout this church. Use this church to do a work here in Bakersfield and throughout the world in the United Kingdom and wherever your word goes forth to save your people for your glory's sake. Amen.